This episode of Escape Pod is rated PG-13 for language, and I don't mean the Haitian Creole. And hey, as long as I have you here, I wanted to let you know I just created a Facebook page for Escape Pod. Yes, apparently it is 2009, smart face. Regardless, I would really appreciate if you'd stop over there and give us a like, and, you know, maybe comment, and check out the stuff we post there. Just go to facebook.com slash escapepodsci-fi. Escape Pod, 436, February 20th. 2014, Into the Breach by Malin Edwards. Welcome to Escape Pod, the weekly science fiction podcast. I'm Alistair, your host, and that was, of course, as ever, Robot Lady. Our story this week comes from Melan Edwards. Melan was born and raised in Chicago, but now lives in the greater Toronto area. His work has appeared in Fading Light, an anthology of the monstrous from Fading Night Press, Steam Funk from MV Media, Corrupts Absolutely, Dark Metahuman Fiction from Damnation Books, and many more. Many of his stories are set in an alternate or near-future Chicago. This is one of them. Your narrator this week is Mandali Louis Charles. Mandali was born and raised in the Caribbean island of Haiti, loves language, and blogs at sweetcoconuts.blogspot.com. The links to all appropriate sites will, of course, as ever, be in the show notes. So gear up. Siren's going. It's story time. Into the Breach by Malon Edwards I'm off my bunk and into my jodhpurs, knee-high leather boots, and flight jacket the moment the long-range air attack klaxons seep into my nightly dream about Caracara. Muscle memory and secret service training kick in. I'm on autopilot, no pun intended, and a good ways down the hall, buttoning up both sides of my leather jacket to the shoulder, a full 30 seconds before I'm awake. And just so you know, the ever-so-slight tremble in my hands and fingers is not fear. It's adrenaline. I'm cranked and ready to put my foot all up in it. A door to the right opens, and Pierre-Alexandre falls in on my right flank, his steps brisk like mine. Our boots echo down the long hallway as we make our way from the underground bunker at Soldier Field to the bunker at Meigs Field. What you think we got? he asks. My reptile mind, that wonderful hedonistic thing of mine, notices how lovely his make-me-jump-up-and-dance like I just caught the Holy Ghost in church dark skin looks in the red emergency scramble lighting. And yeah, I know, I'm going to hell for that. A door to the left opens, and René Bastien, better known as Pretty Boy, falls in on my left flank and matches our stride. My guess is... Fifteen bogeys coming in hard and fast from the south, he says. His flight jacket is only half-buttoned, and he's not wearing his TI-issued white T-shirt. That's Tuskegee Institute, for those that don't know. I flicker a glance at his beautiful, honey-hued, well-muscled chest and frown. 
I bet he just left some police academy recruit in his bunk. Good and Plenty is going to smack him upside his head for entertaining unauthorized personnel after lights out. Lax discipline gets people killed. We've had enough of that lately. It don't matter what we got, I tell them, throwing open the double doors leading to the enormous underground hangar at Migsfield, as long as we finish what they start. We hustle down the short flight of metal stairs and fan out to our respective bright-shredded handlers waiting for us at our outfit stations. Me to Skittles, Pierre-Alexandre to Sour Patch, and Pretty Boy to Good and Plenty. Good and Plenty pops the back of Pretty Boy's neck with a comb before she hands it to him and buttons up his flight jacket. Skittles catches my eye as I pull on thin leather gloves and stand shoulder-width apart on my platform, arms outstretched. You okay? she asks as her fingers flow across her station console, manipulating my exoskeleton into place from above. I hesitate for a fraction of a second before I answer. Mbien, I'm cool. Skittles tries to hold my gaze. She knows I'm still grieving hard. Instead, I look at the empty outfit stations scattered throughout the hangar. Once, there were 36 of us, including Karakara. I still can't bring myself to look at her station on my right. Robotic arms lower the torso of my powered armor onto me and I'll fit my arms and legs with the rest of my sleek exoskeleton. I feel all components lock into place, one by one. You online, Skittle says, handing me my helmet. Systems check, I ask her. All systems green, including weapons. What's the gouge? Skittles glances at a second console screen. 31 bandits, south by southwest, city-state airspace ETA, five minutes. Shit, this isn't just a show of force. The state of Illinois wants to crush us, wipe us out, smother us in the bed of a city-state infancy. Is the Sybil safe? I ask her. She nods, safe and protected in an undisclosed location with Marie-Thérèse, Marie-Louise, Jean-François, and the last CPD contingent. That's Chicago Police Department, for those that don't know. I smirk. I told them they'd outlive us. We're not dead yet, Pretty Boy says, and his voice echoes as it carries to me from across the almost empty bunker. We will be, if you don't put down that damn calm, Pierre-Alexandre tells him. I pat my tight and right Janelle Monet before I wreck it with my helmet. I'm taking the scissors to your hair when we get back, I say to Pretty Boy. If we get back. Pretty Boy shakes out his hair before he puts on his helmet. Cut these beautiful curls, he says through our helm link, and you take away my power. Your power of bullshit, Pierre Alexandre says. I can't help but smile. Good thing they can't see it. They might think I'm getting soft. Scramble in 30 seconds, I tell them. Skittles start the countdown clock before she steps onto my platform and throws both arms around me. Caligeo. Her voice is soft, hesitant. I needed that hug. I don't tell her that, though. My eyes are always open, I say instead, except when Caracara died.
It wasn't your fault, she says, putting on her headset and switching to our private com link. Skittles is a good handler. She knows me better than I know myself. Tell that to my dreams, I whisper. One hundred feet up, the roof of the bunker slides open, taking its sweet time. Skittles steps off my platform and goes back to her console. I watch the last ten seconds to lift up, flip down to zero on the huge digital clock affixed to the far wall. Amisez bien, Skittles says in my ear. Come, her voice now normal, husky like far off water over rocks. Tandis que, fais attention. I laughed into a private com link. Both fun and careful are my middle names. I tell her before I touch my left thumb to the base of my left pinky. The rocket pack, molded into the powered armor Skittles designed and built for me, rose to life. Not wanting to be left in my exhaust, drawers down and ass out, embarrassed again, Pierre, Alexandre, and Pretty Boy fire up their rockets too. I look over at them, and then up at the so small dark sky. Memla, prom, I tell him. Catch me if you can. I didn't think that day would be our last together. I didn't think that would be our last sortie. I didn't think I would never see you again. You gave me no reason to think that way. You were fierce. You were bold. You didn't take shit from nobody. You never doubted yourself. At least that's what I thought. You'd always say, "If we doubt, we die." I often wonder. If you'd ever thought, I just may die today. But then I shake those thoughts away, and I put on a stupid bravado along with my armor, like I did just now in the hangar with Skittles. Yeah, I was fronting. Tanku seu, tanku grandpenu. Just like you, just like our grandfather. We must have gotten it from him, and look where it got you. I wonder if I'm going to die today. I hope I don't die today. I am afraid of dying today. But not if that means I get to see you again. Not that I didn't believe Skittles, but I'm still surprised to see ten Maybach sixty-two S exofighters escorting twenty-one Conquest Knight fifteen shit shells over the south suburbs, just miles short of city-state airspace. Well. I did tell Skittles, "Fun is my middle name," and "Careful too," but to hell with that. Belfleur, grandmoi, my grandmother, used to say, "Capon enterré mamal," cowards bury their mothers, or in my case, their sisters. I don't want to be a coward today. Get your guns ready, boys! I tell Pierre, Alexandre, and Pretty Boy. As we tease out the sound barrier to play with us over Park Forest, Illinois, ready to go hard and fast, Pierre Alexandre answers. I hope you didn't tell her that last night. Pretty boy lobs to him. I can already see where this is going. Pierre Alexandre has never been that bright, strong and reliable. Yes, but a nigg sort too. Tell who? He asks Pretty Boy. Palmetta. There's a brief pause, and then Pierre Alexandre says, "You're just mad 'cause it's gonna take you five hours to get your brothers back done up after this."
Pretty boy kisses his teeth, sadness in his voice. You ain't said nothing but a word. I clear my throat. While you boys are mourning pretty boy's hair, I'll just go defend our sovereign state and its freedom. I touch the tips of my thumbs to the tips of my middle fingers, as if I'm about to meditate for enlightenment. Not quite. Side-mounted Browning M2 50 caliber machine guns unfold from a compartment in my exo-arms, 175 rounds each. My radar shows me that Pierre Alexandre and Pretty Boy are now armed and have done the same. Our guns and ammo don't leave room for much else, but they do go well with our exoskeletons. My Mercedes-Benz S-Guard 600 powered armor, also known as Lark. Pierre Alexandre's Audi Attack 8 powered armor, also known as War Eagle. And Pretty Boy's BMW 7 Series High Security Powered Armor, also known as Peacock. Yeah, you heard right. Peacock. Just know, I didn't hand out code names when I first assembled this outfit. We doing the usual maneuvers? Pierre Alexandre asked me. No, the usual got Kara Kara killed. Out loud, I say, no, fall back. Let them think we're bugging out because we're surprised by their numbers. I pull up and hover. Pierre Alexandre and Pretty Boy flank me. White, wispy, thin clouds broker the distance between us and the Illinois National Guard's shade shells. I'm surprised by their numbers and somewhat coward. But I lift my chin at our enemy, my voice flush with that estipid bravado I inherited from Grand Pemouin. Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable for those that don't know. The same estipid bravado he had when he seceded Chicago from the state of Illinois, established the city-state of 100 fists, and named himself Lord Mayor. The same estipid bravado that killed Caracara. When their shed shells open their hatches to let loose their turds, I tell my dwindled team, move into position beneath and blow them straight to hell. Before the air attack klaxon sounded, I'd been dreaming I was five years old again, sitting on my grandfather's knee. Mikael Anisha was sitting next to me on his other one. Tell us again where the gold is, grandfather, I'd say to him. And the silver and the diamonds, Mikael Anisha piped up. Grandfather chuckled and kissed the loose dark curls at the crown of our small heads. The gold and the silver... And the diamonds, he told us, are in the same place when I first settled in Chicago many coffee harvests ago. Sans record café? Mikhail Anisia asked him. Grandfather pulled us close and laughed again, so deep and so rich that his big belly shook both our backs. Tishushu, he asked my twin sister, do I look that old to you? Oui, grandpa, she answered and pushed on his big belly with her tiny fists. I giggled, both hands over my mouth. No, no, Grandfather said, shaking his head. I have seen nowhere near 100 coffee harvests. Now, your gun, Belflemwe, she has seen many record cafe. I bet she has seen more record cafe than you can count. Now, ah, Mikhail Anisia flared, sitting up straighter with challenge. How many has Gun seen? I asked. Can you count trois sangue cafe? Grandfather asked us. Oui, 
Mikhail Anisha answered, and she could. So could I. Gone is not that old, I said, my mouth pursed in disbelief. Oh, but she is, grandfather assured us. Belle flemme, la moucherie your grandmother. She saw the bombs drop and scorch the land many, many coffee harvests ago. Our eyes widened with wonder and pride and fascination as Grandfather told us again the story of Chicago's history and our family, a story we could never get enough of. But remember, Tishushu, Grandfather went on to say, it was also Gunway who rebirthed Chicago. It was she who purified the soil and cleansed Lake Michigan again. It was she who put the gold and silver and diamonds, and the copper and the uranium too, deep down in the earth, and called it the Gold Coast, all so we could rebuild and thrive and live. And the big bad state wants us to give it all to them, Mikhail Anisia shouted, her fist clenched angry. Just like the big bad wolf, I shouted with her. Ah, but Tifi Shirimoyo, Grandfather said, we should always share with those who are less fortunate. Why? Mikhail Anisia asked, her fist still angry. They take and take and take, and they never give anything back. Evre, I shouted, wanting to be louder than my sister. They will take until we have nothing left. No, they won't, Grandfather told us, his voice deep and calm. We will only share until they have enough, until they can rebuild and thrive and live, just like us. And when they are finally able to do so, we shall share no more. And they will take no more. No, Grandpa, Mikhail Anisia said. They will always take and take because they are bigger and because they are bullies. Ah, Tishushu, Grandfather tutted, but I'm right. The state of Illinois will take no more than we give them because you and your sister will not let them. Mikhail Anisia turned to face Grandfather and looked up at him. Her eyes narrowed and her head cocked to one side. So I did the same. And if the day ever comes where they try, Grandfather continued, kissing the crown of our small heads again, Seigneur, l'enjimez bayo. It's as if the Illinois National Guard knows what we're doing. Their shit shells hold and hover as well. Stand off. Not that this was ever meant to be a complex plan. What now, boss? Pierre Alexandre asked me. Cunier, my grandfather is somewhere hiding in a deep, dark basement, afraid, waiting for the city he rebuilt from its ashes to fall on his head. I never thought I'd see the day Grandpemwe would cower. From the time I was Tifi, I always believed he feared nothing. He is a guonig, a bonig. He is the rebel who gave the land of Lincoln the double middle finger. The politician who made Chicago a sovereign state and gave Creole and English equal legal weight. The innovator who manufactured the armor that seduced me and Caracara with its sleek, sexy power. A power Mamanu, our mother, never forgave us for embracing, not even on her deathbed. Caracara is supposed to be here. Caracara is supposed to be doing this. I guess it's up to me now. I look at Pierre Alexandre and then, pretty boy, back to the usual maneuvers. 
I tell them. I'll take the point. Follow my lead. She did always say, go big or go home. I never call her Cara Cara in my dreams. It's always Mikael Anisia. And she never calls me Mikael Modeste. It's always Lark. So, when Cara Cara said to me, Lark, love of my heart, if you die today, I will kick your ass. I knew my dream had changed, and we were no longer five years old sitting on grandfather's knee. Grandfather shouldn't have made me head of his secret service, I told Mikael Anisia. He should have chosen you. Mikael Anisia took both my hands in hers. We stood facing one another, my mirror, her mirror. He chose you, she said, because he knew I would die. I'm foolish, you're not. No, I told her, shaking my head. I never wanted this, but I put on my armor because you put on your armor first. I wanted to do everything you did. You were born for this, not me. No, Mikaela Nisia countered, shaking her head harder than my head shakes so her loose dark curls flew. You were born for this, just as much as I was. Belle Grandmoy, made you strong, just as she made me strong. I don't believe in Belle I said, dropping her hands, my voice small. We are no longer Tiffy, I went on. We no longer have short curls and skinned knees. I don't believe Grandpa's doll tells anymore. Mikaela Nisia scowled at me. She looked disgusted. Because you are afraid they are true. No, I said, because... But Mikaela Nisia shouted me down, challenging as always. Because you are afraid to embrace Belfler's legacy. Because you are afraid to lead. Because you are afraid everyone knows your flawed decisions killed me and almost every single one of your team members. Her shouts bounced all around us before they were swallowed by a white, loud silence that rang in my ears. Never before had my twin sister said anything like that to me. Not in my dreams. Not when she was alive. I turned away from her, from my mirror, so she couldn't see me struggle not to cry. C'est pas vrai. I whispered at the whiteness all around me. That's not true at all. But Mikael Anisia didn't answer because the air attack klaxon sounded, shattering my dream, taking her away from me. You're stressing your armor, Skittle says in my ear come, her voice calm and quiet, as it always is during battle. A lot. Any faster, and Locke will break apart. Mwepa by your med, I say, my voice just as soft and I push even further past the sound barrier towards the Illinois wedge of exofighters and bombers. Mikael Modest, Skittles scolds, shocked by my language. That's the loudest I've ever heard her speak, and the most pained. Well, I don't care, I scream at her, just as loud, and labula, I wish I could take those words back. I check my heads-up display radar to make sure Pierre-Alexandre and Pretty Boy are still thanking me before I apologize. Excuse him, I tell her, my voice small and five years old again. Really, I am. That armor is my life, she whispers. I know, I tell her. I've devoted more time to Lark than I have to Mama Moyak Semwe, she says. 
I know, I say again. I love Lark as much as I love you. I know, I repeat a third time, because I don't know what else to say. Stop saying I know, she yells at me again, and start respecting her. And while you're at it, she goes on, stop feeling sorry for yourself because your sister is dead, and go bust some Illinois ass. She doesn't have to tell me twice. As I streak towards the Illinois wedge, Tangumunfu, like a crazy person, I line up the 10 Maybach 62S exofighters and 21 shitshell bombers in my sights, fists outstretched, Supergirl style. My 50 caliber Brownings tear through five of the 10 Maybachs. Jagged black pieces of exoskeleton go flying end over end. I'm not surprised. They are just father. The shitshell bombers are the ones with the heavy armor. They do all the damage. The return fire is hot. I point my toes and roll onto my back, dodging most of it with my usual grace as I watch five Maybachs spin away from the wedge and fall to the earth, limp and broken, just like Caracara fell. But I'm not graceful enough. Blazing pain rips into my left shoulder and right hip. How bad is it? Skittles asks, la poula. C'est pas mal, I lie, as my blood streams out to mix with the thin clouds. C'est pas rien du tout. You never were a good liar, she chides, her voice softer than usual. Yell at me when I get back, I tell her, my voice just as soft, and then I say louder in my helm like, How are you doing out there, boys? Eight bombers down, pretty boy answers, but they're starting to shit all over the world. Well, we can have that, I say, my voice wavering your ticlas. Now can we? You keep those Maybachs busy, Pierre-Alexandre tells me, and we can finish up these shit shells in about three minutes. Knowing you and pretty boy, I say, rolling onto my stomach, I'll be done here in five and have to save your asses. I'm channeling Caracara big time now, talking shit and everything. Wish I would have known which busting was this fun before she died. How's the armor holding up? I ask Skittle, forcing strength into my voice. She doesn't buy it. Better question is, she says, with all the gravity in the world, no pun intended, how are you holding up? Mm bien, I tell her, good enough to do this. I put my arms tight to my sides for better aerodynamics and climb straight up to the dark edge of space at toute vitesse. The Maybachs pursue, just as I expected. My teeth rattle as the G-forces try to tear me and my armor to pieces. When I can't take it anymore, I bank left, hard. Two of the Maybachs go with me. The other three shake apart and tumble back to the earth. My neck... My head, my lungs, my heart scream with pain as I try to circle behind the last two Maybachs. I'm too far up. The turn is too tight. I won't make it. And then, the white hot fire from their bullets rip my left side open. I don't hear my crash avoidance alarms going off. I don't hear Skittles crying and screaming at me to right myself. I don't even hear the howl of the wind as I spin and fall. I push that all aside. I just focus on the two Maybachs above, diving for me, arms at their sides. And after one revolution, two revolutions, three revolutions, I smile, let loose my guns, and blow both Maybachs straight to hell. Mikael Anisia had been our wedge buster. Libe, libe, wild at heart, 
our free spirit. More than 150 sorties and hardly a scratch to Caracara. She'd been badass that way. Mikael Anisia had also fiercely believed in Belle She believed Belle had been stricken with polio by Babalu Aye, the god of sickness and disease, who withered every last one of Belle's organs when she was tiffy. She believed Grangon, our great-grandmother, took Belle to a steam surgeon who specialized in metallurgy and glasswork and told him to fix her daughter. She believed the steam surgeon removed all of Belle's withered organs, gave her a steam clock heart and compost boiler, and then encased her torso with nigh unbreakable glass. She believed Belle's compost boiler, powered by the most high-quality coal dust, creates rich, dark, pristine topsoil every three weeks. She believed Belle used that rich, dark, pristine topsoil to cover the scorched land and glowing ash left by the bombs and warheads. She believed healthy and vibrant grass, plants, and trees grew from Belle rich, dark, pristine topsoil. She believed the transpiration from the healthy and vibrant grass, plants, and trees reversed the effects of nuclear winter, bringing fat, cleansing raindrops not seen for years on the North American continent. And she believed after the war, Belle placed gold, silver, and diamonds, and uranium, and copper too, deep within the earth beneath Chicago, called that land the Gold Coast, and left it all for Gampé to govern as Lord Mayor. Those were the beatitudes of Mikael Anisia. But now, as I streak toward the earth, like a ball of fire, I recite her beatitudes and make them mine. And they give me strength. Let's talk about Stack of Pentecost. Pentecost is a man defined by tragedy, the loss of his sister, the threat to his world, the loss of his partner, his own imminent death due to the technology he worked with. Any single one of these would, and arguably should, break someone in half. Because trauma is, after all, like a fractured bone. It stops you moving until it's healed. If you try, you feel that sensation that comes after pain. The wide-angle, overwhelming feeling that washes over you and shorts your entire body out. I've seen people pass out from that sensation. When you experience trauma like that, it reverberates up and down your life, and it does so for an entirely arbitrary period of time. You'll be fine for weeks, months, even years, and then something will happen, and the world will fall away, and you will be locked in that moment, alone, again. When this happens, and it will to some of you, the first thing you'll experience is sheer animalistic terror. The second is total embarrassment. Neither is needed. Both will fade. You're healing. The bone is knitting back together. Your range of movement is improving. Unfortunately, that means now it just hurts. You'll recover. Because humans can recover from almost anything, and that's both a good thing and sometimes an extremely bad one. Because sometimes we don't want to. Because sometimes we know we'll recover different. The bone will knit, but never seamlessly. The wound will close, but will always scar. 
You'll always be reminded of what happened, or in the case of grief, what, or who, isn't there anymore. Sometimes it'll be distant. Sometimes it will be the scream that fills your world to its edges and beyond. The gaps between the days when that happens will grow. You won't notice, but they will. What you will notice is how the trauma, the grief, becomes, if not negotiable, then certainly something you can have a dialogue with. There will be things that trigger you. There will be times when you decide to let them, and there will be times when you decide to not let them. It will become something you can use. You will find yourself with the ability to choose both your battleground and your battles, and crucially, the ability to choose which battles to lose. That's what Pentecost does. He ends his life on his own terms, knowing full well that it's both the right thing to do and the most elegant. His suffering ends. His family get to win. That's a fair price for the end of a human life. It's also what Milan absolutely nails here. The moment where you realise the best way to win is also the best way to make the pain stop. There's not an ounce of cowardice here, nothing but fight and grit and laughing in the face of the thing that broke you, because you broke it and the idea of it right back. A good death, you see, isn't just the pain stopping, it's using your final moments to show your opponent that they aren't just weak, they are wrong. They help you win. You help them end. Here's to the good death. May those of us who need it find it. Greetings and salutations, Escapodians. Assistant Editor Nathan here with the feedback for Episode 432, Inappropriate Behavior by Pat Murphy. This was the story of an autistic girl operating a mining robot as behavioral therapy who discovers a castaway washed up on her remote island and must struggle with the clash between herself and the neurotypical world to get help to him in time. Reaction was mostly positive, though several people mentioned taking a longer time than usual to warm up to the story, and almost no one approved of Annie's doctor. Lisa Valisa had some sympathy for the devil, uh, Dr. Rhodes, saying, On one hand, he's probably spent the last 32 days talking to Annie, a girl who is by definition not good at communicating. He's gotten practice at extrapolating from clues she gives him. How's he supposed to be able to tell that when she's raising her voice and repeating something that this time it's important? On the other hand, Dr. Rhodes is supposed to be an expert at dealing with autism spectrum disorder and has personally taken charge of Annie because he has assured her parents he can work with her, so my sympathy for him stops there. I guess what makes me worried is I'm not a trained professional, but I do have people in my life who are neurally typical, and most of the time communicate well, but what if one day they try to communicate something important to me and I don't pick up on it? J.K. Jones was one of several commenters with a personal perspective on the story's themes. My wife recommended I listen to the story because it's titled Inappropriate Behavior, and that's pretty much my catchphrase at work. I'm a special ed teacher in a school for kids with severe emotional and behavioral disorders, like autism. Annie's behavioral therapy was to try and act more like an NT and the frustration that pops up on both sides when neurotypical folks and people on the autism spectrum are trying to communicate. The fact that in this case Annie had something genuinely important to tell the doctor just drives the point home. As for the plotting pace wrapped around the central communication problem, well, yeah, that's totally accurate. In this story, it's because the doctor's kind of oblivious, but it, it should be noted that these kinds of frustrations are two ways. Almost daily, I have an exchange with one of my autistic students where I have to remind him multiple times that the class is nearly over and he needs to get ready to, tra to transition. It wears on my patience because the information I'm trying to give him is important, but I have to remind myself that there's a difference in communication style, just telling him is not enough. To get confirmation he understands, he responds better with a light touch on the shoulder, 
At the same time, I get frustrated with what's necessary. I can see that he gets frustrated by interactions with others because he just doesn't understand the social cues. My school does a lot to try to help him and our other students learn those behavioral skills that they need to be able to navigate neurotypical society, but we know that for our autistic students, their experience of the world is not the same as ours, or even as each other's, and they'll never develop an intuitive grasp of these social cues that we take for granted. Well, that's all for this week. Join us next week when we'll be trapped on a desert island with only the comments from episode 433 to save us. See you then! Escape Pod relies on you to pay our authors and cover our server costs. We take an advertising when we can, but the muscle, the shoulder to the wheel, that's all you. There are two ways you can keep us flying. The first is to donate. Any amount you like is a one-off. The second is to subscribe. Subscriptions start at two bucks a month, so they cost you a couple of candy bars a month or chocolate for those of you not in the US. In return, you get every episode we put out, plus the premium content we're gearing up. Either one works, although subscription is honestly and, weirdly, slightly preferable. So please click on the donate button on the sites and do what you can. Our story next week is A Rose for Ecclesiastes by Roger Zelazny. Then, as now, we will be a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Our closing quote this week is a poem written in 1900 BC by an anonymous Egyptian. Death is before me today, like health to the sick, like leaving the bedroom after sickness. Death is before me today, like the odour of myrrh, like sitting under a cloth on a day of wind. Death is before me today, like the odour of lotus, like sitting down on the shore of drunkenness. Death is before me today, like the end of the rain, like a man's homecoming after the wars abroad. Death is before me today, like the sky when it clears, like a man's wish to see home after numberless years of captivity.